Hello and welcome to the Winners Never Quit podcast. Today I am joined by Chris Martin. No, not the lead singer of Coldplay, but someone just as interesting, more interesting, (laughs) double ocean rower, world record holder, XGB rower, my weather rower. So Chris, hello, welcome, thank you for coming on the podcast. I do really appreciate it and we start every podcast the same. What defines winning in your life? Um, I think winning is succeeding in the aims or the the goals that you set yourself. Um, yeah, it's sort of fairly generic, but it's it depends on what you want to get out of something as to whether or not you succeed at it. Um, from an ocean rowing standpoint, it could be getting to the other side is succeeding. It could be that you've set out to break a world record and anything less than than that would be would be a fate or would be seen or could be seen in your own mentality as a failure um but i think a lot of it comes it, uh, as with so many things it comes to down to the the pre-work the um, planning stage the preparation which will then define and crystallize what failure success or completion look like yeah, I like, funny you should say that because do you find sometimes in ocean rowing, um, people maybe get a bit too hung up on the record? I mean, maybe I could even even guilty of that. Would you say that's definitely something that sort of creeps in when rowing an ocean is a pretty big feat, no matter no matter how long it takes you? Um, would you say that's something people suffer from? Oh, massively. Yeah, I mean, I'm entirely guilty of that myself as well. You know, as a former British athlete, um, uh, rower. Um, setting off across the Atlantic, I was all I was setting myself up in my head for right. I'm gonna absolutely smash the world record of 42 days for a classic, classic sailor. But here we go, no question. You know, I know what I'm doing. I'm fit, strong, and healthy. I've got a well-prepared boat. That's um, sure it's an older plywood model, but that was what the record was set in. So there's no reason why I couldn't. And I hadn't really considered that wind waves, weather and everything else sort of obviously play a significant part in in that. And that is something that you have absolutely no control over. So to recognise and realise that took maybe about five or six days. After about four days, I was like, right, obviously I'm way off record pace. I'm I'm absolutely out the back door. Uh so I need to work out what to do to change that and uh, went through everything on board and was like right what can I lose to to lose some weight or lose over the side to, to lose some weight go a bit get a bit lighter and, and move on so I had some um, a day tank of 20 litres of water so I was like right well fine I'll just make it as I go this is fine uh, went through the toolkit I was like well I don't need a hammer I can you know don't, we've got, had in the day those days we had to have two hand axes so one of those went into the drink <laughs> And a few other like like really minor elements are just like over the side they went making zero absolutely zero difference to the actual weight of the boat um and then after another day i think i'd realized that actually it wasn't the extra 15 kilos of water and hammers that were slowing me down it was just the fact that the wind and waves weren't pushing me along as much as they could potentially do and that year it was a it was a slow year, it was a rough year, 
and I think once I'd at that point four days I could have then continued to bang my head against the wall and recognise and not recognise the fact that no matter what I did I'd still end up not breaking that record and then be really disappointed at not breaking it at the end or I could accept the situation that I was in relax into it and decide to enjoy the incredible experience and I'm so glad that I chose that second path um, because it allowed me to overcome many more challenges through that journey than I ever would have been able to if I was hung up on breaking the record at all costs because every single little thing that got in the way of that that goal would have completely obliterated or like just it would be like constantly stumbling you know you try and run and every single time you're twisting your ankle or you're you're falling over or you're you're losing your step um you know i broke all my oars i capsized i broke my rudder in half the gps repeater on on deck um stopped working i had to solder it back together again one of my stoves went over the side along with a kettle um uh, yeah, there's just like a multitude of issues that... Can I just jump in there, right? Chris is being very blasé <laughs> about some of those issues. From someone who's also rowed an ocean, all your oars breaking, right, is one thing. Capsizing, another. But losing your potential to have a hot wet your kettle. <laughs> I can't even believe you brought a kettle, actually. What? Because I just had a cooker and then uh, obviously poured the into my flask did you actually have a, a standalone kettle so uh yeah in in the olden days as apparently now it turns out i i rode in um i had a little color gas cylinder that was sort of held inside this giant aluminium tube and on top of that went a kettle um with a whistle on so that when it started to boil you you knew it was up and it meant that if it tipped over it wasn't really a problem because it was secured inside this giant aluminium tube with holes drilled in the side um and then you could put in sort of a uh, a kettle on top or a, uh, something else. Yeah. Yeah, it worked quite well. It sounds like a fab <laughs> if you're asking me. <laughs> and it definitely is the old days. So that was your first um, first Ocean Road crossing. But just before that, I want to talk about the switch. So like you alluded to there, you were on the GB rowing setup. And then, you know, what happened there that you didn't end up pursuing that further and you ended up going down the Ocean Rowing route? the peak of my rowing um, career at exactly the right time to give me a chance to move into the British squad as sort of the, and I'm less, just a squeak less than six foot high. I was never a massive um, ergo champion. I could never quite pump out sort of the, the sub six and beyond ergo scores that you'd need to be sort of a solid member of the crew. Um, and I was still still at university as well, so still try sort of so many balls in the air at one time. Um, but in let's see, so 2000 Olympic year, I was part of the under 23s, um, and we got a gold medal. Did really well, loved it. Cox four. Um, the next year, which would have been the the year after the Olympics, so anyone who's been in that Olympic cycle, almost irrespective of whether or not they're going to carry on, they're going to have a bit of time off after the Olympics. Those who are maybe in their third or fourth Olympic cycle might have a whole year out and might not even be around 
in in that year post Olympic cycle. So it's a great opportunity. And then also those who are giving up drop out the squad. So there's an opening, there's a capacity, and there's a space to fill at that stage. Um, and so at that point, I was still under 23, rode at the under 23s, and we got a silver. Um, but a really good silver in something close to, must have been like 96% of predicted gold medal time or something like that at the time. And David Tanner, who was the international manager at the time, now Sir David Tanner, uh, came over to us afterwards and said, well, fantastic result, boys, well done. Shame you couldn't get the gold, but, you know, we can see the Australians were pretty, pretty shit hot. How do you like the concept of seeing if you can stick a cox on board and become the cox for and race at the senior world championships in three weeks time? They're like, well, that sounds bloody amazing, doesn't it? Brilliant. Um, I had a slight sort of uh, moral question at the time because my girlfriend at the time had been doing an endemic bird study in Vanuatu, was entirely off grid had a satellite phone that like as an emergency use only um and so we'd agreed to meet in sydney airport at such and such a time on such and such a date sort of three months previously i was like well she's gonna be really pissed if i suddenly rock up late <laughs> and like really sorry i've got a really good excuse but you know um do you know what i find funny like my little brother doesn't even you know in a generation don't even know how like disconnected we were you know mm. back then i mean obviously obviously a lot younger but yeah it's mental sorry anyway you said right yeah, vanuatu yeah. So, girlfriend yeah, yeah. sydney airport um and thankfully it turned out that her project hadn't quite so david tanner was fantastic i'd already booked my flights i was like look i'm you know i'm surviving on student loan and and handouts basically <laughs> to be able to get, survive and eat um so he was like, well, look, how about you're due to fly out on the whatever it was, pretty much the day of the race. He's like, well, look, if we get you on the next flight the next day after the finals, is that acceptable to you? I was like, yeah, that'd be amazing. Cool. Yeah, I can, we can work, make that work. Um, and so that was what happened. Uh, we had a fantastic race within the last, I don't know, must have been. 10 strokes of the race we pulled into third position beating it was the slovenians and that famous ocean medal. rowing nation <laughs> the slovenians uh sneaked a, a bronze medal which was just like manna from heaven couldn't have ever guessed that that would happen um which then opened the door to what was going to happen uh in you know in 2022 and, and beyond uh, 2022 came uh, after oh, some illness and injury, uh, mainly illness. Just had a horrible chest infection through sorry, most of the winter. 2022. Oh, sorry. No, I don't know. 2002 it would have been. So, so yeah, you were so, saying. Yeah, in 2002. 2002. 2002 Not 2022. Um, so in 2002, uh, I was. Uh, we raced as part of the spare pair. Um, went to a couple of the World Cup races. Uh, with yeah, mixed results, um, had some quite you know, quite good events though. We're sort of starting to raise our game, get more into that rhythm of being part of the squad on sort of the odd occasion. Um, and then in 2003, had a really duff result at trials. Had poor ergo representation. 
and got to the point where Jürgen and David Tanner were like, we're really sorry, but you're just not performing at the level you need to. Um, so we're going to have to cut your lottery funding. And so from that point, it's like, ah, I've got to eat. I've got to put a house over my head to be able to survive and to be able to do everything. And there's no way I can do that and row full time, like proper, you know, properly to, to squad levels without some additional funding. Um, and that is that at that point, it was like, right, the writing's the writing's on the wall. Either I can sort of continue to thrash this a bit or I can sort of accept that, get a job of some sort and, and continue to row at club level, um, which I did uh, continue to row at Molesy. Um, how which has been my club for years how was that you know because you're very successful was that the first time you sort of tasted defeat I don't want to say failure but you know had been sort of told maybe this isn't for you how how did you frame your mindset to sort of get over that and and to not you know because a lot of people would have jack rowing in completely what made you continue to row I think I'd, I always loved the sport I always loved being on the water and and also the the com- camaraderie, the teammanship of I never really got up in the morning to go training for myself. I always only ever did it for everyone else who was in the crew. That if I wasn't there, they'd be like, Where the hell's Chris? So it's that that force of I love being part of a unit and a team all working with the same goal in mind and it was just a a beautiful thing to be part of and to be able to continue to do the sport that I love doing all right albeit in a club uh, boat but frankly I wasn't able to put in the time and effort to be able to punch up the um the results table to to get myself back into the squad and Molsey was still competing at pretty high level we were still going out and racing the British eight a few times and and pumping in some pretty decent results against them. You know, we we turned them over a couple of times. We'd go and race Oxford and Cambridge and routinely turn them over. So it was a pretty strong, you know, you'd look down the boat and you'd be like, yeah, there's about four gold medals in this from various yeah. world championships. When you're looking <laughs> down, and stuff. You, are, you have it all the time at work when you you know look around in your team, whether you're doing a log race or whatever, you go, God, who's the handbrake? And I say, if you don't know who the handbrake is, it's probably you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you should say so. You, it sounds to me, you were never driven, you know, by going to the Olympics and and uh, and going, going, getting a gold medal. You know, it, you genuinely had a passion for rowing, and when it wasn't, it, when that avenue was sort of closed, you were like, "Well, I'll just row at club level. I'm I'm more than happy to do that." Yeah, I think the also the writing had been on the wall for long enough that. I'd realised that I was, you know, I always felt lucky and fortunate and there was never a sense of entitlement about any seat that I, I got in any world championship or, or sort of, you know, that, that level of boat, never any sense of ownership over it. And it was always like, you know, brilliant. We've been able to do what we needed to do to perform at the right level, to, to push ourselves fast enough to, to get the result that we needed um it was never a sense of i'm owed this or i sh- i should be 
I guess I always felt lucky that I was there at all. <laughs> you know, yeah. In some respects, you know, I always remember, like even like at a junior level, we we performed really well in the seat trials. You know, I was probably one of the top, well, must have been the top four on my side, so top three or four, I guess, somewhere in the mix. And we got cut away from the rest of the uh, squad, and we got to go out and paddle in an eight together. And everybody else is still out doing try at seat trials and racing up and down at home pier point and we're like wow crikey i might you know what do you think do you think i might be able to get into like the coupe de la jeunesse or what what do you think's going on you know what's happening and they're like well clearly we're go see if we can make an eight go fast enough to be in the world champs i'm like what you mean i might be going they're like yeah of course you're going i'm like oh right okay cool sweet <laughs> that's just, <laughs> you know never had any in anticipation of it other than just go do my best head down yeah yeah um i think that work ethic is just you know it's so important uh to almost sometimes you if you start looking up and seeing where you are in a race and you're not where you want to be then it's like oh hang on something's going to trip you up whereas if you just stick your head down and keep thundering down some big shovelfuls of water you still go you just go perform at your best aren't you yeah i always remember you saying that to me when i were at the start of my crossing when i was racing that uh the the other guy, uh, Julian, you're like, don't worry. You're like, yeah, yeah, he's, don't worry. You're catching him, you're catching him. And I'll be like, come on, tell me where you are. So I definitely, uh, I've experienced that myself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we touched on your first crossing. So when did you, when did you hear about ocean rowing? And then what made you to think I'm going to spend, because, you know, back then it's, it's not majorly popular now. And, you know, back when you did it, it was 2004. Uh, 2005, 2006. Sorry, 2005, yeah. 2006. It was really unheard of. You mm. know, you were actually in the race with James Cracknell and Ben Fogel, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how did that, how did this all come about? Oh, so it all started, um, I first heard about it would have been at the Munich um, Juniors in uh, 2018 or 2019. Um, and it was in the Regatta magazine, which goes out to all British rows, um, coverage of the previous year's race. And it just sounded crazy, exciting, fun. What a fantastic thing to be part of. Um, and got chatting to a few other people. And they sort of, you know, a couple of people agreed. A couple of people thought it was just crazy for even considering it. Um, and then didn't hear anything about it. Didn't really follow up at all until must have been like 2000 and I guess probably pretty much straight after getting dropped out of the squad I was like right okay not going to be able to make the Olympics world championships are, are not likely to to come by so what else is out there and thought about ocean rowing and originally signed up for the Woodvale race with as a pair with somebody from the rowing club um, and after about six months we had got half a website built and hadn't done anything else whatsoever and we're like right we've got the rules we've got an entry in inverted commas in the race yeah this isn't gonna this isn't gonna happen you know we clearly we're not doing the legwork there's not much drive to make it happen knock that on the head fine get our our refund back or whatever it was and then i think i came back around to it. i would have been after a henley when somebody might have been sam knight not sure somebody was at Henley who was a friend of my girlfriend's from Oxford might have been Sam Knight actually um in the boat that I would later row in uh un unbeknown to me um and just got chatting about about what it was I was like oh that's kind of cool this is you know it sort of reignited that interest in it 
and later on that winter it must have been i then called up ken crutchlow at the ocean rowing society went round to um to theirs for a chat and a cup of tea and he sat me down and about two hours just unloaded and downloaded just information at me at a, a crazy rate of and sh show me what an EPUB looked like show me what a water maker looked like show me what an argos beacon looked like which is the old tracking beacons uh gave me a, a cup of tea to drink while we were sat there and gave me a freeze-dried meal of spaghetti bolognese to eat when i got home uh gave me the number for somebody who owned a boat that needed somewhere to keep it and sort of threw me out the door and i'm sort of standing there going I think this might all just be coming together quite nicely. <laughs> um, and uh, the guy whose boat he'd uh, suggested I have a chat to about uh, was, the, well, the boat was called Pacific Pete, named after Peter Bird, who died rowing the Pacific Ocean in 1992. Um, the guy who owned it was Jeff Allen, who was the first guy to row. So hang on, Pete, ha Pete hadn't died in that boat and they'd recovered? No, 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 no sorry. No, it was named after him. Oh, so right, yeah, sorry, my yeah, bad. No, because it was uh, back in the back in the day, whenever that is, like it's like mid-80s, uh, Jeff Allen by Peter was nicknamed Atlantic Allen because yeah. uh, he'd rode the Atlantic with his cousin in 1972 and then tried to go back the other way in 1973. No, hang on, 71 and 72. Um uh, whereas Peter was always focused, had done the Atlantic in a in a pair, but had then been focused on rowing the Pacific um, all the way across east to west and then um, fatally on his fifth attempt going from Vladivostok across to, to the USA. Um, and Jeff was like, oh, yeah, well, my boat's coming back into the UK in a couple of weeks. I need somewhere to store it. You want a boat that you can show off and you might want to use this one if you do that's great let's talk about you know your ability to charter it from me um, and this is the fee and if you decide not to use it then at least I've got somewhere to keep it that isn't on my garage yeah in my garage or on my driveway so Jane my wife's gonna be really happy about yeah. that so, oh okay cool fine okay sounds sounds good but you know I had to chat to the boat club they're like yeah there's a bit of space around the back move some things out the way and there you go and of course then as soon as a boat turns up everyone's like whose boat is this who's rowing the atlantic yeah and and at that point i was like well okay so i've spoken to the ocean race society who at that stage were also putting on a race um and tatiana said well look if you enter now then we're going to be selling our race entries across to the woodvale race so you still get to take part in the race that's happening what was it a year's time let's say um but for our our same fee and i was like okay well what's the deposit no deposit just tell me you're committed and we'll put your name on the website oh, okay fine sounds good so quite quickly i had a boat and everyone asking me am i rowing the atlantic my name's on the website as entering the ocean Race society race and and from then on it's sort of like right okay this is like the universe is giving me a kick out the door and it all just sort of came came together from there yeah so I'll, it's so funny to sort of hearing about you know how it was done back then because like when i go back to saying connection like now you can just google well sorry go on instagram twitter facebook ocean rowers like back day you back then you really were working it out on the fly you know and just sort of taking this information in it's um it's a mad to see how the sports sort of like progressed and we'll talk about that more we'll talk more about that later so you've got your boat everything Talk us through sort of the crossing. I know you alluded to, and this is probably a big misconception 
people think, oh, we're going to go out there and break the record, but it really depends on the weather. And you said you had a slow year and you had a rough year and that led to your cap size. So how did, um talk us through that cap size and what was that like? Because thank oh. God it didn't happen to me on my crossing. <laughs> um, cap sizing, right. So this would have been pretty much, I think the next day I went over the halfway line. So it would have been, we'd have to have a look at the chart, but it would have been something like, took 68 days total. So I'm guessing something like day 39. Um, it was actually known as Super Sunday because I think there were like nine other cap sizes in the fleet of 26 boats by the <laughs> by the end of that day. So it was just monstrous seas. Um, but at the time I'd been, so I had, had, had gone through the process of having electrical issues on board. Uh, my water maker had stopped working. Cue annoyance at throwing away my uh, some of my day tanks earlier on and not replacing them. Um, I'd spoken to Sam Knight, who had rowed the boat previously and had capsized with about 80 to 90 kilos of water on board, and the boat had self-righted. So I felt fairly confident that I had drunk the ballast water down to a point at which it would still self-right. I had flagged down a yacht previously, but um, I then drunk some of that water, so... <laughs> it's all good fun I was all the things uh, all the things you told me not to all, do all, I mean this is it you learn from your messes you know you work out what went wrong and then you're like okay so this yeah. is why and this is you know there's so many I don't with all the crews I work with and I'm sure we'll get into this later but I don't mind the making mistakes I just want them to make all brand new mistakes that no one's ever made before yeah and we've learned so much from all those errors and, and problems through the last, I don't know, 20 odd years that, God, we should be better at it by now, you know. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and it's getting there. It is getting there, which is why success rates are going up and so on. But yeah, that's that's why I'm pretty keen on ballast water being like a little bit more than you might like, because frankly, you don't know until you get to that point when you're surfing a giant wave and the foam builds up on one side of the boat more than the other. Um, and then you realise that you've actually broached, and then slowly it sort of tips you in, relatively gently. Actually, I was quite, it was quite kind to me, um, and I sort of sat there, feet still clipped into the the foot stretcher, waiting, waiting for the boat to just pop back round again, and it just sort of never did. So I was like, shit, hang on, do my capsize drill. I remember this from Junior Fourteens in Molsey uh, or at school in the swimming pool at LEH. Right, take my shoes out, come around to the side of the boat. Hmm. Wonder what's going on. Why isn't it why isn't it self writing? Pretty sure the hatches are shut, the vents are shut, so there shouldn't be any water getting into the boat, but she's still upside down. So I was like, well don't know don't really know what to do now. Uh but I'll try and scrabble up onto the onto the hull because sitting in this water's kind of you know, a bit boring. It'd be nice to sit on the boat rather than next to it. So tried to scrabble up the side and the, the anti-foul was so slippy that I just sort of came strapped back down again. I was like, well, that's a shit idea. I'm just getting covered in blue, blue anti-foul. And then it was just before dusk. Um, so at that point, I could just see the uh, the sun starting to set and the and the fin or the, the rudder sticking up at the stern. I was like, hmm, I wonder, is there enough? Would it would that be enough of a lever? Could I could I use it in some way? Swam around to the stern and my ankle leash was just oh no, it was still okay, it was 
I'd had an ankle leash uh, attached on, which at the time I thought would be sufficient if I'd capsized. Now, it was okay in my scenario of capsizing, but we since know, obviously with Michael Johnson uh, fatality in 2016, that ankle leashes are not the, they're not a rated line. They're not designed for that. They shouldn't be used. Um, but at the time, it was it was what I had. It was what other people had been using, and, and we learn and move on. Um, but so I, I still had was attached to the boat uh, by this I don't know eight feet eight foot li surfing leash. Swam around to the rudder, basically did a chin up on it, and as I did my chin up, the whole of the boat sort of came came round and came back up the right way. Uh, the VHF antenna caught my ankle leash, so I was like suddenly my left ankle was sort of three foot out of the water and I'm trying to desperately undo it to be able to get back on board, <laughs> on board scrabble back on board and just like look inside the hatch and I'm like okay right the cabins are dry great news brilliant shut the hatch I'm like right we are filling up everything tonight any water that we can fill up is going in that is not going to happen again um, and half of me likes the concept of looking at as I'm sat on the boat or as I'm trying to, to work things out on the boat and seeing my kettle float away, but I don't I don't really believe that was ever the case. <laughs> Just a nice romantic gesture to the poor memory of that whistling kettle. Yeah, it makes for a good story, but I actually hate it. One of the worst times of rowing for me personally was dusk. I didn't like it. I didn't mind it when it was dark. I just hated that feeling of like the night club. So to be in the water struggling... Was it pretty, yeah, to be struggling to get up thinking, right, I might be out here all night, but. I, had, I, I didn't think it had, I don't think it had been that Or are you long. just in survival mode, I'm guessing? I was like. just in, I mean, like I was in, oh shit, you know, as it went over and there was like, hang on, right, air pocket, sort of underneath between the gunnel and the, well, between the gunnels and the, and the side decks and then sort of popping out the side and being like, oh crap. Yeah. <laughs> and then it. I mean, in my head, it was like 10 minutes. I'm sure it was like three or two. Yeah. In reality, everything just like went in a heartbeat. It's um, funny. When I got um, like T-boned by a big wave and the only time I came sort of close to capsizing, yeah, again, it feels like you're there for minutes. But in reality, looking back, I'm like, that was probably over in seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but in your head, you're like, oh, it was so bad. Oh, it just went on forever. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'd, I don't know what I would have done well i suspect i would have just got the life into the life or i've got the ditch kit gone through that process but i think it was i was i i'm quite proud of myself you know looking back i'm like oh, did all right there made the right choices yeah um didn't panic there was definitely no panic there was just a sense. i mean there wasn't really a sense of danger i hadn't really computed that at that point i was like my boat's upside down i'm in the middle of the atlantic i hadn't yet kind of processed the this is a really shit situation to be in somehow. My brain hadn't quite computed that. I was still like, okay, right, let's let's solve it. And that was that was sort of my mantra or the, I guess the way I tackled the whole thing from start to finish was always a, a sense of, well, here's a problem. Like, let's let's have at it. Let's overcome it. Yeah. Um, and I guess that I would definitely agree. That's your mantra. That, uh, here's a problem. I've only ever heard you flap once and you know what that was. <laughs> but no, you're definitely like, because I'd, I'd phone you up and or we'd be speaking, you know, because it's a solo row, you have no one really to speak to. And I like to speak to you because obviously you knew what I was, what I was going through. I remember, like, 
It takes like five days of like shit weather. And I'll be like, oh, Grace, come on, what's the horizon? <laughs> you like, oh, it's not that great. And I'll just be like, oh, for oh, fuck's sake. Oh. I just moan to you for for a lot of the crossing, baby. It's baby. all right. It'll, yeah. be, it'll get better. Yeah, it'll that, get was better. De- that is definitely better. your mantra. Um, even though you capsized, you broke all your oars, you still thought, I want more of this. And then you met Mick Dawson. And then you attempted... <laughs> You were actually an inspiration. Like whenever I was feeling bad, I'd think about your second crossing in the Pacific, 189 days. Mm, yeah, right. So this is the world record, the first team to row from Japan to North America, San Francisco. Yeah, I'll let you start. So you finished. How long until you met Mick Dawson and he convinced you to do this? What was the time frame? And then tell us about the other challenges oh, that you faced. Yeah, so... Um I think I met Mick previously because he was... So you, sorry, you met Mick before you rode the Atlantic? Very briefly. Um, he was on the support team who was helping out uh, scrutinize the boats and check them over prior to departure in um, in La Gomera. Um, and we'd sort of, yeah, he'd have a look around the boat. Obviously, he, he was seen as, well, he is and, and was the, the ocean rowing guru at that stage as having done the Atlantic with his brother in, I think, in the first or the second race in 97 i think might have been 99 um clearly knew his stuff he'd also then tried to row the north pacific twice i mean you're like this guy knows his stuff yeah the second time he got real close as well didn't he yeah nearly a thousand miles so it's like oh so close but not quite i mean you know a thousand miles is a thousand miles is a lot right guys but (laughs) in the north north, uh north pacific what, what what was your total mileage Seven thousand uh, total mileage travelled was a bit over seven thousand. Direct straight line would have been about five and a bit. Yeah, but yeah. So seven thousand to get within a thousand miles of the of the <laughs> so coast close. is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean just gutting. And he capsized right on that last bit, but he was in the cabin at the time, um, and his boat didn't self right. I think he had a, the door on the latch and just a bit too much water got in. Um, but then we we really met properly up in. Um, after I arrived in uh, Antigua. So I got in uh, maybe a, just over a day later. Um, my girlfriend at the time broke up with me. She'd been rowing in the same in the same race in a, uh, in a four, had got off for medical reasons, met me in Antigua, dumped me. Well, at least she did it to you. Well, she couldn't really text you back then. WhatsApp well, yeah. wasn't a thing, so she had to do it to your <laughs> no, face. We still had sat phones. It's still, you know, <laughs> still a thing. Um, but yeah, and and then you know, it was like, okay, right, I'm going. I was like, right, okay, fine. Mick, just been dumped. <laughs> Need a pint. He's like, and straight away he was like, right, which bar? Where are we going? You know, let's catch up. Um, and we just got got chatting, and and fairly soon, like while we were in Antigua, he was like, hey, what do you think about coming and row the north? North Pacific. I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. Honoured that you'd even consider me. A whole raft of emotions from, well, we have to go and see, go home and see my mum first. He's like, well, yeah, obviously, you know, we, you know, the boat's being built at the moment. We've got a bit of time. It's currently as a solo setup. We can cut and shut things a bit to, to open it out to a pair setup. Uh, but this is going to give us a, a really good advantage because we can always keep the boat moving. We can row two up if we have to, to push through bad weather. We can much more accurately get a chance of of hitting San Francisco and rowing underneath Golden Gate. And that's that's the target. Um, and so I left Antigua sort of 
buoyed up and excited about the prospect of that. And then I guess it would probably, in a revolving period of every fortnight or so, I'd call him up and say, either yes, I'm definitely involved, I'm definitely up for this, or no, I'm def- I can't do it, it's just too much, it's too big and scary. Um, and they don't, you know, there's still only four people have rode the North Pacific. Um, two French solos and myself and Mick. So it's a pretty Something small Something about club. the French and rowing oceans, isn't there? Like tough. I mean, yeah. Some of the, yeah, Giro d'Abbeville were a mental journey he went through. Yeah, like the... Um, Phenomenal. The the guy that did it in a barrel that unfortunately... So, what was his name? Can you remember his name? Um, Not off the top of my No, nah, there was a French, yeah. French explorer that... He f- he floated, didn't he, from the Canaries to the Caribbean in a, in in a, a barrel. barrel. Yeah, yeah, and then he oh. he um he unfortunately passed away the same season I was rowing the mm. uh, rowing the Atlantic. Um, yeah, sorry, so yeah, I so, so and then the the driving force. So I was then I'd taken a job at a, basically something nearby where I could cycle to it in the morning. No real pressure. Had a chance potentially to then grow and expand and and something something within the company uh, in time and a memo went round about how teaspoons should always be placed handled down in the dishwasher because otherwise the residue from the dishwasher then forms on the spoons rather than on the handles and at that point I took a little walk outside had a little word to myself and called Mick up and went okay Mick yeah well, I'm in I'm definitely in I can't <laughs> be doing this anymore <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm off. So uh I mean that must have been in two thousand seven and so it was two years later, two thousand nine when we actually set off in May. Yeah. Pushed off. Um just trying to explain to people listening that don't know much about Ocean Road, what what makes the North Pacific and the Pacific more challenging than I'm not gonna say more challenging, uh different. Different. Yeah. Different. Yeah. Um, firstly the size. Like yeah, it's I bigger. Mean, it's it's twice the twice the size ish uh, in terms of uh, total distance um to the pacific uh, sorry to the atlantic um secondly you have the kurishio current which is a really strong warm water current that comes up from the philippines carries across um up past japan um and then heads out into the north pacific um if you can get into that current and get locked into it it can get, it can really help you for five six hundred miles offshore. If you don't get locked into it or lose it um, or come to near the edge of it, it can swirl you around and you can just be doing loops for for days. Uh, so it's it's really a case of trying to get in the current, stay in the current religiously, almost stop rowing, let the current take you. Um, and then the weather is I mean, basically we left our, the day of a typhoon blowing through. So the typhoon blow through, we're like, right, fine. It's still raining heaps while we're finishing up loading the boat. But we've got to go now because this is the window that's going to give us that weather to pull us off the shore, get us into the Kirishira within 24, 36 hours. Um, because otherwise, in another 24 or 36 hours, the weather system will restabilize and it will just be blowing back into shore and there's no way we can get out to the Kirishio 
until that until another typhoon blows through basically and also you want to try and give yourself the maximum period between typhoons <laughs> coming past you um normally they'd sort of head up further north so there's a much more of a routing um, aspect to it because there isn't the reliable trade winds that you can get across some of that atlantic route from say sort of a bit south of the canaries across to antigua you don't get those trade winds that just blow consistently from the same direction day after day after day you i mean there was maybe like 12 hours where the wind was blowing at our backs the whole hour at our fronts like blowing us in the right direction for the whole trip um the rest of the time it was just continuously clocking around moving around or you'd be rowing with the rudder over one way and just try and make your best possible course uh so it's just a, a real battle of attrition and because it just goes on so long it just wears you down and wears you down and wears you down and by the time you finish there's nothing left to give it just then like thinking about that weather it's it's quite predictable especially if you go the right time of year in the atlantic so just to have that you know constant confusion and not knowing where it's going to come from must have been so tough. What was your orig original time frame for this row? So we planned for six months. We hoped that as a pair we would be able to break the 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 times that the solos have been setting, which is like 125, 135 days. So we're like, well, that's that seems like a reasonable expectation. You know, two strong guys in a boat that's lightweight. Yes, it's got sort of extra things going on with it, but it's... Uh, you know, it isn't the lightest built thing ever, but it's it's pretty shit hot, and it's got it, the thing is it's robust, and it's not nothing's gonna break on it, at least nothing significant. Try remember now. No, I don't think it was pretty pretty solid. Um, all things being equal, uh, and that was sort of our mantra because Mick had had issues with his rudder on the first trip, issues with capsize on his second trip. We'd sort of. We'd overspect it. We built it like the Russians would, you know. It's just like built to last, big, solid lump, but actually relatively, you know, in the best possible um, materials that we could we could fathom. So it was carbon Kevlar, foam sandwich, fairly light until sort of you realise the deck had been put in a bit wonky and needed to be filled up with filler on about an inch thick on one side of the boat just to be able to sort of mean that you had a, a level deck. Which then, of course, meant that that side of the boat was heavier, so laid down. So the water makers got to go on the other side to ballast it out. Um, yeah, minor challenges to to overcome from that side of things. But it was uh, Bojangles is a yeah solid solid vessel. Is uh, she still going? Is she still? Yeah, still. I don't. I'm trying to remember who owns her now. I think it's probably still Mix, officially maybe. Yeah, I know um, Daryl Taylor. Uh, no, Daryl Farmer used to originally for the pacific row um got a day and a half two days out of monterey got hideously seasick um and eventually we uh we went out and rescued him and brought him back in and then he went and did the atlantic race um a couple of years later i think that's the last time she was used in anger um i haven't seen her in ages actually yeah come to think of it what so over those 198 days you'd have had loads of challenges to overcome what was the lowest point and how did you get through that? Um, this is a really weird one. So it must have been uh, probably sometime. I think in the I know last, what you're going to say, but 
Well, I mean, it's either almost dying through fire or um, there was a time, must have been 100 and... I'll just quickly explain that. So <laughs> there was an electrical fly. He w- wasn't going to burn to death. He was going to get choked. Just well, asphyxiated. Suff- yeah, asphyxiated. Yeah, basically suffocated. one of the solar panels had short-circuited through the through the carbon, the uh, conductive electric, uh, conductive carbon in the, the boat's hull um, and had started a fire due to faulty solar panel and faulty faultily installed um uh negative bus bar for the um all the all the electrics uh last bit of sunshine of the day would have been fine if it happened an hour later because there wouldn't have been enough sun on there to generate a current but this thing as it was just shorted out the circuit started and uh, it basically started to smolder the the carbon kevlar uh mick thankfully noticed that the compass was doing a little whirly gig just above the cabin door so it was reacting to the current that was pumping through it and then noticed a sort of heat haze that I'd had the the uh, door on the latch thankfully thank god um and he had spotted that it was a bit of a heat haze and a bit of smoke coming out and it was like seems odd went inside the cabin this opened the door and just like plume of black smoke and I'm none the wise I'm just like completely out for the count not because of the asphyxiation, but just because I'm exhausted tired, and yeah. tired. Yeah. Um, so it's like fire, fire, and just like hauls me outside. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, feels like I've. You see, ever seen the videos of people trying to eat cinnamon? Yeah, it's yeah. It's just yeah. like, yeah, just these dry, <laughs> dusty stuff. Just like, <laughs> you need to drink a Smoked water. 100 Marlborough Reds. Yeah, something oh, like that. Hideous. So, uh, yeah, just turned off all the electrics. Thankfully, the, the carbon in the boat never got to ignition temperature because at that point all bets are off and it would just burn down until it burns out um, and we would have been sat there in the life raft looking at our smouldering dreams um, but thankfully that never got to that point so we just disconnected that solar panel we had a little look at the um, the rest of the electrics to make sure it wouldn't happen again and yeah carried on okay <laughs> so almost <laughs> almost died in a fire that's a very good low point. But what was it? Late uh, for my next shift. That yeah, was a yeah, problem. Yeah. yeah. What was, um? there was another point so, where you thought you were close to the finish. Uh, well, I was going to say the lowest point, it has to be sometime in that last two months where we thought it would be the last month. Um, and I've got the diary somewhere, but it was literally, I'd written down something like, oh, if I'm out here in fucking October, that's it. I've had enough. And, you know, we eventually landed in 13th of November. Um, and the current was pulling us my back, and oh, happy birthday for them! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and we, yeah, the current was playing with us, and I was just exhausted. And I'd had more than enough of my fill of the whole project at that point, and it was dark, and it wasn't particularly pleasant weather. Um, and yeah, I just, I just had enough. I was just like, oh, fucking, just if I just need something to to change and I, I i prayed and i'm not in any way a religious person i wouldn't classify myself as in any way that way inclined or my you know my belief systems very much around sort of the science and what you can see and what you can understand and believe and and i prayed that something would would help me at that point and the current within 30 minutes the current had changed and helped us out for the next hour or two hours 
and then it went back to doing what it was doing before. But (laughs) but for that little moment when I was absolutely at my lowest possible point, I was, you know, I was crying. I was just like angry and cross and despondent and had nothing left to give. And the Pacific had taken everything. And at that point, the current just changed enough to allow me to keep going uh, and to keep rowing and to finish my shift and to then go and have a bit of a nap couldn't agree more you've got to look for those little wins when times are tough yeah. haven't you especially on the ocean um i think that's a great place to end the pod um i want to say a massive thank you i could speak to you all night mate but i'm aware you've got kids and you've probably had a long day mate so i really <laughs> appreciate it thank you mate um Pleasure. finally guys if you like this please give the episode a like subscribe all that good stuff because it helps grow the podcast and yeah stay tuned for the next episode cheers Chris, thank you so much, mate. I really appreciate it.